Welcome to Pandemics in the Liberal Arts, a podcast from the faculty of Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Chris Garrett's professor of history. I'm Amy Poppinga, also in the history department. And this week we're joined by philosophy professor Sarah Shady. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Now, listeners to Channel 3900 probably know Sarah instead as Sarah Shady, public philosopher, whose last episode was actually about COVID in a sense. Uh, It was about Albert Camus' novel, The Plague. We'll see if we talk about existentialism a little bit more, because this week on Pandemics and Liberal Arts, we're talking about Sarah's discipline of philosophy. So again, the idea of this podcast is we want to talk about both how our disciplines in the arts, humanities, and sciences help us understand a pandemic and cope with it, but also maybe why a moment like this reveals the significance of the liberal arts and the kind of things we do at a school like Bethel. So we talked about history last week, Amy and I, now we're talking about philosophy. Now, um, Sarah, at least some of our listeners might be prospective students who are in high school right now looking at college for the fall. They, they probably have had history classes, know kind of what history is. They probably haven't had philosophy classes before. So before we get to our kind of typical pandemic questions, what is philosophy? Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of students don't really learn about philosophy until they come to Bethel. Um, Most sort of properly, the word translates from the Greek as the love of wisdom. And so philosophers um, unpack the idea of our discipline as trying to go beyond just learning facts about the world and have a deeper sense of knowledge and understanding about them. And that can come about in a few different ways. Uh, Philosophers investigate concepts um, like justice or goodness or the good life and um, explore different answers and weigh and evaluate different answers to that. We also ask questions about how we come to have knowledge about the world that we're living in, what we're capable of knowing about reality. And then uh, we put all of that to use um, in terms of asking ethical and political questions about how the world should be. So on the one hand, philosophers describe the world as it is. And on the other hand, they're looking at the question of how should the world be? Wow. Well, that's really helpful, Sarah. Um, This podcast really started because Chris and I were having a casual conversation just about how we were doing. And um, in in the midst of that, we began to just discuss what we were teaching and the ways in which being historians and and being people who um, have those skill sets and how that makes us think and how it helps us to um, think about how to um, both, you know, kind of understand or find certain types of um, security right now. We then also talked about how that's translating into our classes and how sort of regardless of what the topic may be, whether it's directly relevant or not, we are finding that, you know, obviously we are discussing the pandemic and what's happening in our society in our classes. And so we just wanted to ask you, where is this showing up in your classes? Yeah, there's a few different places. One of the things that I'm teaching this spring is History of Philosophy 2. And that class studies um, philosophers from the early modern period up to about the 20th century. So we start with people like Descartes um, and John Locke. But right now we are in um, 19th century philosophy. And on Tuesday, we were talking about John Stuart Mill. And Mill is like a perfect person to be studying during the time of COVID. Mill is famous for developing um, an ethical theory called utilitarianism. 
And utilitarians suggest that we determine if an action is right or wrong by applying what's called the greatest happiness principle. So if an action promotes more good or more happiness for the most people involved, it's a good action. And an action is wrong if it produces more harm or pain for more people involved. And societies tend to actually function on utilitarian principles. So if you think back to Italy about a month ago, where they didn't have enough ventilators for their population and had to make really difficult choices about how are we going to share a scarce amount of resources um, with severely ill people, they made the decision that anyone over 80 was not going to be given um, access to a ventilator. And there's a utilitarian calculus going on there uh, because you can't quite weigh just one life against another life. You have to weigh how much life does that person have left, how much potential good or potential harm comes. And often the decision is made to save younger people rather than older people on that utilitarian calculus. Uh, utilitarianism also comes in when we're thinking about questions of weighing um, should states start to open back up their economies or should we stay in more of a lockdown quarantine shelter at home place and again you're weighing different consequences and trying to decide how do I create the least amount of harm is more harm going to be calculate or is more harm going to result because um, we free up our, our society too quickly and then more people get sick and die? Or um, are we going to cause more harm by keeping the economy slowed down? Um, and then, it, you know, you can start to see how a utilitarian calculus gets really complicated really fast because you have to take into account as many people as are going to be affected by your decision and you have to try to project as far into the future as you can, right? And this is why it's complicated. This is why it's really hard to say, well, we have to err on the side of making sure more people don't die um, and get sick. Um, well, it's easy to say if you have a job and it's hard to predict the long-term financial consequences and um, harms that will be incurred by continuing to shut down the economy, um, right? So uh, it's, it's really complicated to try to sort out all of those issues, but that's how John Stuart Mill would have advised us to think about some of the ethical dilemmas we face in COVID. So Sarah, do you, um, because we, uh, you know, um, all moved into online learning halfway through the semester, did you find that students were sort of like ready to do this work? I mean, that they were sort of like, all right, you've, you've sort of trained us and that they are curious or interested in a different way or actually feel kind of equipped to do some of this type of thinking that while there's so many ways in which it isn't theoretical, man, you're really proving right now it's not just theoretical. Yeah, you know, I think it's been kind of interesting because a lot of modern philosophy is actually focused on questions of how do I come to know things and can I have knowledge of reality? Um, do I know that my perception of ma reality actually matches the world that's actually out there? And those are really interesting questions, but I have sensed that those are a lot less interesting to students right now. And what they really want to have are the ethical and political conversations. How do we live well in this context? Why, you know, 
why debate epistemology and metaphysics when we could be talking about real life ethical dilemmas? So I really see them kind of come to light, you know, um, when we're when we're having some of these ethical conversations. Sarah, I know another kind of, I don't know if this is ethics necessarily, but uh, how do we live well in community or how do we live well in relationship to others, to others is something you're interested in as a philosopher of community, but also you're teaching a class on friendship right now. Yeah. And so I, I wondered um, how this crisis gives us a different vantage point maybe on the nature of friendship, uh, interpersonal relationships, or maybe community more broadly. Definitely. So I'm teaching an inquiry seminar for first year students. And the topic of that is friendship. So we've been looking at different definitions of friendship throughout history. Um, we've been looking that, at that from a lot of different angles and students are now doing their own uh, personal research projects on the topic of friendship. Um, but it's shocking how the conversations that we're having and our, how we think about this topic has changed in a period of isolation. Just one example of that from this week, um, we're currently reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, which is a model of how to live well in Christian community. And chapter three of that book is actually about solitude, about the importance of removing oneself from other people for a time period. And students, I when I'm teaching that book, I usually have them do a solitude exercise. And in a typical semester on campus, it's really hard to even find a place to go to be in solitude for an hour, right? And, and that is so shocking to their system. Now we're having a totally different set of conversations. They're still going to do the exercise, but um, finding solitude isn't necessarily hard, but thinking about how to use alone time well for an hour, like what would be a really healthy spiritual use of this hour is, is kind of the relevant question to them right now. They're also thinking a lot about... Um, uh, how proximity and being face to face with people impacts friendships and relationships. Um, I think especially um, students in this generation are so used to having so many of their friendships navigated online that that seems, you know, like, like there's not a relevant difference between online friendships and face to face friendships. But when you lose the face to face piece, you really start to think about what, how we define friendship and, and why online relationships do seem to be qualitatively different than in person ones. So, Sarah, you mentioned uh, another branch of ethics. I know a lot of your students are interested in not just philosophy majors, but like nursing students who take philosophy classes as medical ethics. Yeah. You mentioned the problem that doctors in Italy, other countries, maybe in places like New York or Seattle have faced. How do you make decisions when you have to triage different levels of, of uh, COVID and there are only a few ventilators available? Um, but there are also, I would imagine, questions of medical ethics around, say, research, right? We're, mm -hmm. all, we're all waiting for a vaccine to arrive. I was watching a documentary about the polio vaccine that came out in the 50s, and that was rushed through partly because they did the testing on uh, kids in orphanages, um, some of whom had developmental delays, who couldn't really give informed consent to the testing, but there was such great societal demand for a, for a cure that they rushed ahead with it. I mean, if you're teaching a class on medical ethics right now, how would you be talking with students, maybe especially students who are thinking about careers in healthcare? Like, um, how, how do you grapple with um, those ethical issues as a philosopher? 
Yeah, definitely. We do use a lot of case studies because these are very real life issues. And most hospitals or um, hospital networks have an ethicist on staff who weighs in on making these decisions, both at the policy level, as well as being able to meet with patients in a very personal level who have to make very difficult end of life choices about a family member. So there's definitely a role that philosophers play in healthcare ethics, but also just teaching and training doctors and nurses how to think well about these things and researchers as well. And it is interesting how times of crisis impact how we view our ethical principles and we might be willing to make exceptions on something that we weren't before. And human rights is such an interesting issue because we tend to think you never violate human rights ever. And that's a good thing, right? Um, at the same time, should we speed up vaccine testing and start to inject live vaccine into human beings before we're really very sure on what we're doing? Um, and on the one hand, if adults consent to do that, you know, have we really violated their rights? At the same time, if the reason for doing it is economic because you're going to be paid to be part of the study, then it seems like are we really taking advantage of the poor? Um, it seems like more ethically, we should all just have to do a lottery and like randomly be injected with it if we really wanted to be fair on a human rights basis. I'm not necessarily saying that's the right idea either. But um, but so many of us benefit from sacrifices that are being made in other places. We also often don't think about the use of animals in research. And that even if I take an Advil, right, I'm using a product that's been tested on animals. And we test things on animals before we test them on humans. Um, and so even being mindful of the animal and environmental impact of a lot of these decisions is important to think about as well. Um, it's interesting because even with some products that are being developed to address different healthcare needs during COVID, um, the FDA gives special exemptions to speed up the process. So you test something on animals, but you skip human testing and just go straight to market. Now, that's more for products that are not likely to have um, impact on one's life overall, so won't result in death or something like that. But um, yeah, but we do have a way in which we maybe overstep or, you know, kind of brush to the side some of our ethical principles in times of crisis. And yet, there still is a core value there, which is protecting human life. And we have to make really hard decisions because at root, we share the common value of protecting human life. Sarah, kind of, I mean, <clears throat> I've been curious, uh, being your friend, knowing you as a colleague, and if over the last couple of weeks, you've had moments where you've sort of recognized, oh, I'm thinking about this, my situation, the situation we're all in, in this way, because I'm a philosopher. And I guess it just kind of has made me curious as to, you know, like, what advice does a philosopher have to give us? Like, what can your discipline offer to us, that, like sort of the average person to say, okay, here, here's some helpful ways of, of sort of thinking through this. Um, doesn't necessarily have to make us feel better, but maybe just the practice of even how it can help us think about it differently. Yeah, definitely. Um, a couple different things come to mind. And I think one of the things that's hard in times like this is we feel helpless when a 
problem seems so big and we can talk and think about it, but I'm not on the hospital policy board. I'm not advising, you know, the governor on, on what to do in, in these times. But there are decisions that each of us make that do impact things. So, um, like, I, I had to go to the post office yesterday and I wore my mask into the post office. And there's a sense in which wearing a mask right now isn't even really about self-protection. It's actually what I'm doing for other people. And so there are really small ways that, that might seem small. But to think about, I have a moral obligation to not harm others unnecessarily. And if I can wear a mask, even though I don't like it and it makes my glasses fog up when I breathe, like, I'm still going to do it because I have an ethical obligation to try to protect other people in my society. Um, another place I actually really see philosophy coming up a lot, and this is a little bit different than what we've been talking about with ethics, but just in terms of of thinking about how the truth matters and um, and when we hear different things in the news, to always ask the question, is that really true? And to try to find the best information that we have on it, to try to look for bias that might be pushing a position in a certain way, um, and to try to be really careful about our thinking as we navigate a lot of the different things we're hearing um, these days. So, Sarah, on the first episode, one thing I mentioned is I've read C.S. Lewis's sermon, Learning in Wartime, a few times. And mm -hmm. he, it was very early in World War II. And what, he was trying to make the case that even in the midst of war, something that seems like it should occupy all of our attention, it demands all this exertion, all this effort, learning should chill, still continue, even if it's not related to war. And it struck me that might also pertain to a pandemic, that even though something like philosophy can help us make meaning of what's going on, think ethically, think carefully about the information we receive, it's not the only thing that philosophy does or that philosophers do. So what's something else you're doing or looking forward to doing as a philosopher, as a teacher, as a scholar that, that you find energizing right now or that students might be interested in? Yeah, um, I think that's a really good question because we do have to keep learning because there is life after COVID and there are still the callings, you know, that we're being prepared for in our education, both the ones that we can predict and, and the ones that we can't predict. And there's still a way in which we honor God with our minds um, every single day of our life, regardless of that external um, circumstances. And so um, a couple different things that I am doing right now, um, actually going back into the um, early modern philosophy and really thinking about early science and theories of perception that aren't really relevant to the world today, but yet it helps me think about human um human beings and how they navigate history in different time periods. And so I've actually, um, it has been a long time since I last taught history of philosophy too. Um, and so I've been doing a lot of study on the philosophers that I'm teaching. Um, and, and that's been really good. I also think that it's important to keep remembering, you know, kind of what enhances our lives, um, what makes life meaningful, what creates the good life. And part of that is still to challenge ourselves to do new things, to grow in new ways. So 
Um, one of the things that I've actually been doing is um, Professor Amanda Hamilton in the art department at Bethel had to figure out how to teach painting virtually. So she's created a series of tutorials and she shared them with me and I'm learning to do watercolor with her um, painting tutorials and taking a couple hours a week um, to enhance my own personal growth that way has been really rewarding. And it's actually something I wouldn't have time to learn right now if I was in my normal life schedule. So I actually think in times like these, we have great opportunities to learn and cultivate new pieces of ourselves. So I encourage our listeners to think about some of those opportunities. Well, Sarah, thanks for taking some time to talk to us about how as a teacher, as a scholar, you're, you're thinking about this crisis and you're taking the chance to do some other things. It's uh, really inspiring to hear you talk about philosophy. Yeah, thanks. Um, thank you for inviting me here. It's, um, it's a great opportunity for us to talk about why the liberal arts are so relevant all the time, but it's, it's um, a particular context where we can help communicate that to our listeners. Absolutely. So listeners, we hope that you found this uh, instructive, inspiring. Hopefully uh, hearing about philosophy helps you think differently and maybe more clearly about uh, something like COVID, but also maybe COVID helps you see the importance of philosophy and of the rest of the liberal arts. We'll be back next week to talk about another academic discipline that we teach at Bethel. Until then, for Sarah Shade and Amy Pompica, this is Chris Garrett. Thanks for joining us.